Um, if you will, let's turn our Bibles back to the passage in Colossians. So we're going to start in Colossians 1. And I'll just admit some poor planning. So I thought we'd just follow the uh, lectionary. And then with the, so we started in Colossians, with a Colossians passage last week. We were at the last half of chapter 1 of Colossians. But um, the problem, so when we're doing lectionary passages, a lot of times there's a lot to cover, so we don't do well at covering it. And then, like through Colossians, it's not really going through the book. It's hitting some highlights in the book, and then it moves on to something else, and we're going to be into Hebrews in about, like, I don't know, next week or two weeks or something. So I didn't like that. So I thought we ought to just walk through Colossians. Poor way to start it, starting in the last half of chapter 1, now coming back to the beginning. But that's what we're going to do. Um, I would rather do it poorly than not do Colossians. So, um, so we're going to walk through Colossians together. I don't know how long we'll be in it, but... Uh, we're going to go through the entirety of the of the book. Uh, when we get to the last half of chapter one, we'll assess that, and maybe we'll redo some things there, or or take the last half and spend more time on it, or something. But uh, so we're going to we're going to begin in verses one through eight uh, here in Colossians, and uh, I think I think the Lord's going to uh, give us a lot of what we need through this study. So. Let's pray our collect of the day, and we'll jump in. Almighty and everlasting God, you are always more ready to hear than we to pray, and to give more than we desire or deserve. Pour down upon us the abundance of your mercy. Forgive us those things of which our conscience is afraid, and give us those good things for which we are not worthy to ask, except through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ our Savior, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, last, last week we talked about it's vacation season. It's also gardening season. How many of you have your own gardens? Anybody? Not many. Hmm. How many have ever tried to have your own garden? There you go. Yeah, we've, so we fit in that category. Um, and we quit because the we go through all this energy and effort. And I didn't, anytime, if I put, that doesn't have to be a lot, but for me, if I went through this effort and energy to actually get the ground ready and plant the seeds and, and put the plants in, but then the deer and the bunny rabbits, they ate all of my plants. So to fix that, I quit. And then we started gardening through produce stands. And still today, that's what we do. And you know how, but you know then how challenging gardening can be. All these things have to be right. The weeds can come in and overtake. The rabbits and the, and the deer can eat them up. You have to prepare, and it's like this continual effort if you're actually going to have a good harvest, um, which I guess for us it's really almost it's the beginning of harvest time, depending upon what your uh, things are. So this, this thing where it's uh, the constant battle um, is, is kind of the idea that I want, I want us to have about how challenging it can be to have a good and productive garden. Um, Imagine, imagine planting your plants, and because you've planted them, then it becomes kind of like autopilot. And so, without a great deal of effort on your part, these plants flourish in your garden, and then it produces a fruit, or, or the, whatever the produce is, in abundance, and all you did was actually plant. Now, this is the kind of 
We would call that a magical garden. Well, um, that would change the complexion and the complexity of gardening altogether. Well, that's kind of what happens in, in, in this book of Colossians and, and, and in this passage that we're going to be in. N.T. Wright actually used an analogy that was very similar to this, is where I even came up with this idea, um, about what's happening in the book of Colossians. And I think it's, I think it's really uh, very helpful for us to think through this. So Colossae was a very small city in Asia Minor. It was about 100 miles uh, from the capital city, which is Ephesus. And it was closer to Laodicea, where if you have read through the first few chapters of uh, Revelation, you'll come across Laodicea. Uh, It was close to Laodicea and Hierapolis. And it is thought that in this... um, commerce city of Ephesus, the gospel would have been heard and then carried out to these outer lying cities and planted and the churches became in existence because of what was happening actually in Ephesus. So these people heard, they took back to their own cities the gospel and, um, and then it, it began to take root. So this is kind of what we're looking at. And then based on the names that are in this book, the, the audience is thought to be more Gentile than Jewish. So this is kind of who he's writing to. So these are the others. It's not, it's not the, uh, there are certain things that are emphasized when Christian apostles are writing to Jews or an audience of Jews. And then there are certain things that are emphasized when writers are writing to Gentiles. And when they're writing to Gentiles, that fits the most of us because we weren't Jews we are the other. So there was in, in, the, in that world there's God's chosen people of Israel, the Jewish people, and then there are the others. So we fit into the other category and those would be called Gentiles. So the other nations. And when you have, when you have things broken down to that simple, the two groups, okay yes we fit into the other group. Um, Paul is writing to address a heresy known as the Colossian, uh, Colossians heresy though we don't even know exactly what that is. But based on the things that Paul is stressing, so uh, we we talk about a mirror reading, and we can only go so far with this, but we would, I think it's pretty safe to assume that because of what he's stressing, it could be that the heresies uh, that these false teachers were teaching were things like emphasizing the worship of angels or some other heavenly being and then following some sort of rules or rituals or practices. And it was kind of like an adding on to the gospel. The gospel wasn't enough. You just had to add on to it. And apparently there were these customs that was, it was kind of a combination between Jewish customs and pagan customs that were being uh, talked about and taught among the people in the church. Now we, we talked about um, last week that Paul wasn't the the person who planted this church, but that would have been Epaphras. And uh, Epaphras was uh, somebody from Ephesus who, where, church, where that church was planted by Paul. So as we go through this book, we'll deal more specifically with some of Paul's arguments against some of these uh, poor teachings that were leading to or grouped together become this Colossian heresy. So. For today in this passage, what we're going to see is the true gospel goes forth as seeds are cast out on the ground, as 
as the gospel goes forth, as seeds cast on the ground, and it produces a fruit of unity and love and hope restored by grace. So first off, we're going to see the garden. We're going to look at, uh, we're going to look at the garden and the plant and then the fruit. So first on, in the garden, we're, like, where, where are these seeds being planted? Who, to whom is this given? So what is the garden? Let's start in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. So he's Paul uh, has Timothy with him. Timothy is his younger protege, and as he's writing this letter, likely from prison in Rome, he's writing this letter, and Timothy is with him. Paul again identifies himself. We we've we've been through books of that Paul has written before, and this is a common way he refers to himself. He says he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And, you know, you may not have been here when we did that and what have you, and if we turn the page and we do another book of Paul, he'll say the same thing, and then I'll say the same thing, and this is okay because we need to hear this, that Paul does not take this, he doesn't just say, I am an apostle. This is not something he takes upon himself in this greeting, which this is, this is a letter to them. It's laid out like a letter we would have. It doesn't take a lot for you to imagine what is the structure of this, and you just read it, and then we're familiar. If you've been in the Bible and you actually read, we just go ahead and gloss over, oh, it's Paul, and we, and we just move on. But I think it's important to note what Paul is saying about himself. So he's establishing his authority. Why? Who is he to address these people? Why should they pay attention to his letter? Um, perhaps, perhaps you've spoken into things before and your opinion was not even considered. There was, no, there was no standing. Nobody really cared who you were. Well, this letter has lived long because Paul establishes who he is. He is an apostle, which, and the term apostle means one who is sent. For new works, so he's, the the apostle is motivated because of his calling in God, and then that idea that he's going forth into new territory, planting churches, starting new works in order to spread the gospel, is kind of the role of the apostle, one who is sent. Um, this and it, and and Paul wants to emphasize that he he didn't take this position upon himself, but he was actually appointed by God. He had a call directly from God, and he responded to God. Now we understand this pattern still to be active today um, in our church currently. Now, um, now in our in our world in which we live in Mid-Ohio Valley, it is not uncommon to find somebody who has risen up and called themselves whatever, apostle, a prophet, or a teacher, or a, a pastor, and start a church. Some, some of you are very familiar with those things. In our church, we don't, we, that's not, it's just not an option. Um, you, don't, you don't just rise up and call yourself a pastor. Now, does God do the calling? Yes, God still does the calling. And so there's got to be an internal call, but then there also has to be an uh, external affirmation of that call, and eventually the laying on of hands so that they're like I am under authority. Um, 
you know, the, the short end of this story is I grew up here, left, I came back and started a church. Well, there was a lot that happened in that time that I was gone, and I didn't come back, and I'm not coming back on my own. And I don't speak under just my own authority. I'm under the authority of those above me. To be under a godly authority is a good thing. It's a very biblical thing. We in our evangelical world and being good Americans, we don't even like authority, but it's there. Paul is saying, I am under authority, and I have been instructed by God to give you this message. So you should listen to it. So, um, yeah, Paul, so Paul didn't plant the church. Epaphras did. It's one of his converts from uh, Ephesus. And then this, and, and later, and you may have run across these names before, and I think it's interesting to put these in some sort of a uh, category. Tychicus and uh, Onesimus are mentioned later in this book, and they were the ones who delivered these, these letters. And evidently they were with him, Paul, in Rome while Paul's imprisoned, and they, other people needed a letter, and so he writes a letter to uh, Ephesus, he writes a letter to Colossae, and then he writes a letter to uh, Philemon. And Philemon's that one-page book. Uh, that's, 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 that's a good one to check off your list as far as reading. Well, yes, I read that one. It's one, one page in our Bible. It's hard to find because it's only one page. But those three letters, Paul wrote at the same time and then gave them to these, these guys uh, to take. And they, they were going to go on their way. Well, while you're going there, take this one too. And so Onesimus, if you, you might remember, he is Philemon's uh, slave. And so he's sending him back. Paul is sending Onesimus back to Philemon. And so as they're going, they're going to go to these churches and deliver these letters. And so they're more than mail carriers. Uh, they are agents of the Lord as well. But they're to deliver these letters, and then those letters are to be read among the people. So it's not just a letter to the pastor, and he selects whether or not he shares. These, these were designed to be read in front of all the people in the, in the congregation. Uh, and so then we see, so Paul has established who he is. We've gotten about Timothy, our brother. And then he says in verse 2, he says, To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. So, and the saints, or it could be, it could be translated as holy ones, because the, and, and the, Greek, the Greek term for uh, saints uh, would be the same as holy, and this means the holy ones. So, how many uh, of you feel like a saint? How many of you feel like a holy one? Typically, when we, talk, when we think about saints, we're, that's the other, <laughs> talk about the difference between Jews and Gentiles and Gentiles being other people. You tell me about a saint, and that's going to be somebody else. That's not, that's not me, and it's not in my family. Well, the term is applied to you. You are, if you're, if you're a believer in Jesus, then you are a saint. Um, Paul applies this term to those who God has called unto himself and has regenerated them and called them into the church, out of the world. So it's by his spirit, his Holy Spirit, that he makes you holy. And it's because of who he is and what he's done and not who you are. So we, we recognize, and that's where we frequently talk about, we're simultaneously saints and sinners. So we're ever battling sin, but we have been justified, made right by the work of Christ on the cross, by the blood of the cross, 
And they and you then have been made right and you are holy in God's sight. You are a saint. So in his greeting, Paul's recognizing the redeeming work of Christ in Colossae. So I'm not sure that Paul has even been to Colossae. He's hearing reports and he's, and he's recognizing what Christ has done. And the fact that the gospel has gone forth, people have been, they've heard, they've believed, and by the Holy Spirit, people have been regenerated and brought into this, uh, this church. The people of the city would be the garden, the people of the city of Colossae, and who he's addressing in this particular letter, that's who uh, is the garden. That's among whom the gospel was planted. So Parkersburg, the Minoai Valley, in our context, is the garden. This, it's a, it's a, the people among this area that the gospel has come to, uh, that's the garden, and that's what I want us to think through. God has planted his gospel in the people, and then we're going to see about the planting, and then we're going to see about the fruit. So the people were already there, and then someone had to come and actually plant the seeds of the gospel. So we're going to look at planting. So let's look, begin in verse 3. Paul says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven... Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. So Paul gives thanks for them because they have heard and then they have believed. He can tell that they have believed. He can tell that they've, had, that they've responded. The seed has gone out and the seed has taken root. So, and this may stir up in you the, the uh, Jesus' parable of the four types of soils and some lands on hard ground, some lands among the rocky paths, some takes a root for a little bit and then dies out. But then some lands on good soil. This would be the good soil. There was like, a, a, in, in Jesus' scenario, in his parable, there's only a fourth that's going to survive. That Where the seed goes out, the gospel is planted, there's only a part of that that actually survives. Paul is saying, you're among that good soil that the seed has landed on, and we can see that it has taken root. And we give thanks for you because we know it has taken root. This gospel which they have received has given them a different perspective than that of the world. And we talked about that last week. We're, we're, we're <clears throat> we have that to look forward to in the book, but we've already been there. And this is the thing that helps set them aright among confuse, uh, confusing messages coming their way. It's the thing that we need to help us set, set us aright when we have confusing messages coming our way. So we, we need to know what, uh, what this gospel is, what this word of truth is, in order to interpret the world around us. Um, the, if, if you have believed, you, your citizenship has been transferred from that of the world into heaven. So you're now a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, and it's that citizenship it's that kingdom which is influencing our perspective in the here and now. How many of you know someone 
who has lost hope? You don't need to raise your hand, but I want you to think on that. And if, and if your answer is nobody, then you need to think on this some more. Put that, one, you know, put that in your pipe and smoke it. Think on this as you leave, because, like, you know more people than is here. And if you know more people, you know someone who has lost hope. And what, what might that look like? It could look like a lot of things. And on the surface, people can look fine and like they're, they're leading a productive life. But where are people finding their hope? That's the thing I want us to think on. This has already been years ago. Now, I've only been back here 10, so it's, sometimes when I say a long time, I'm talking like 60 years. But in this case, it's within 10 years. But Scott Berg, our state Young Life director, was out at Ritchie County at the high school. And the high school principal was leading a, an assembly. And in that assembly, he had people up, and he would ask specific uh, questions to them, and then they would give their answers. And, and Berg said that the common theme that they all had was they had a lack of hope. Well, more and more, and, it, and you don't have to be a high school senior. You don't have to have the, and there are kinds of, all kinds of weird peer pressure things going on. I don't know if you all remember your high school time. And maybe you're, you know, I'm oblivious to a lot of things now. I was oblivious to a lot of things in high school. I kind of just ran my own way, and I didn't, that idea that there was a lot of pressure on me, I didn't really relate to then, but it happened, and other people believed it. Other people bought into it. Other people were persuaded by it. Um, so the other day when we were on vacation, we were on our side porch of the, of the house we were in, and Ev, our two-year-old granddaughter, had the whole porch clapping and praising her for something she did. And she would say, yay, and everybody would clap. And I was not clapping. And she looked at me and said, Papal. And I, I needed to clap in order to appease her. So what do you know? I, I, yes, I did. I clapped. And then I said, I have made it all my life and not given in to peer pressure. And her dad said, but this is granddaughter pressure and it's different. And I said, you're absolutely right. So. But that, that stuff that goes on, it, it, and it, it does happen in schools. And, and, and if you're in a school, you know that. If you've got kids in school, you know that. And they're being pulled in all kinds of different directions. But it doesn't just happen with them. It happens with us as well. It happens with old people, people who have been out of school for a long time. And there's that kind of concept of keeping up with the Joneses or doing whatever. And, you're, and, and all the social media things only fuel this. So whatever your lot in life is, you have, what you need is a lack of contentment and you need to desire something different. And whether that's in relationship or material things or how we fixed up our houses or on and on and on, and we're influenced by all these things. So for us, this thing of lack of hope when the world has become more and more disconnected from God. And I could talk long about that, and I'm not going to. Trust me on that one. Talk to me after. But used to be we were um, under kind of Judeo-Christian values so, sort of ruled in our society, and we become more and more secular. We're being more and more disconnected from God. And so we're told in our world that ultimate truth comes from inside of you. Well, that is antithetical to the Bible. It is wrong. It is opposed. It is, it is the opposite of what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach you that your greatest 
truth comes from inside of you. No, the Bible says that your heart is deceitful above all things. So when I, when, if you're, if you're looking for discernment and you're trying to weigh out heavy decisions and you're like, well, would I feel this? Okay, you might need to have somebody else speak into your life. The Bible says that inside of you, you have a problem. And the answer to that is from, comes from outside. It's that alien gospel message. We've discussed this before. So your problem is inside and your fix is from outside. The world tells us our problem is outside and what we need to do is go to the inside and find our fix. And then whatever you conjure up in your goofy little mind, that's, and you live your truth, I'll live mine. Which is why we get into the things that we get into. And people don't know a lot of things. I'm just going to leave it at that. Um, things that we used to take for granted, people doubt and turn around. And I find this very weird, and I think it's a strange time to live because, because of these things. But what that is is, okay, I have a lack of hope. Because the only perspective I have is the here and now. And the here and now is not all that pretty. Um, and, and, and this is true even if you're, you live in a good middle class family and you've had plenty you never wanted for, you know, you're not, you're not, you've not gone weeks without food and such stuff. It's, it's still, what is your hope? If this is all we have, we don't have much. Well, the beauty of this alien gospel message is it draws us out of our self-absorbed world, our self-absorbed life, and draws us into this kingdom, which is, gives us this reality, what real, what real reality is, and it says, what I've been experiencing is not the reality for me. C.S. Lewis has said, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to contrast, uh, and, and, and I know nobody else knows this, but I've got to tell you, nobody knows this Johnny Cash song line, but he, says, he has a song and he says, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Well, we could probably say that about some people somewhere, but I'm going to contrast the great theologian Johnny Cash with the fact that we don't think of heaven enough. C.S. Lewis says, if you read history, you will find that Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. He says, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. That comes, that comes from mere Christianity. I think, I, think this is, I think this is beautiful. Those who are doing the most for this world are thinking the most about the next. And it's that next who it is that next world which influences our view of the current things around us. Without that, gloom, doom, hopelessness. Hopelessness will, it, it, it will just increase. So, like, when I was a kid and I did grow up here, and there were drugs. 
there, there, were, there were bad places, uh, there were strip joints, there were those things, but they weren't, there were not as many of those kinds of things going on. The drugs were in particular spots, and this has uh, been 10 years ago now, well, that's not KKB, right? Must have been eight, uh, that some guy was shot at, uh, at the corner of Plum and Washington, and so we got to talk to a lot of policemen, because um, I was out there. Well, I guess truly, I was nearly shot, because I heard some noise and I stood up to make myself more visible. I didn't, this is not my expectation. And my dog, who was deaf and couldn't hear, she even got down behind the banister, and I was like, what's going on here? And finally, I got a little down, but, the, but then this guy was shot, and they, but he had been, it was a drug thing, and then he was running for, from police, and this was not a high-speed chase, but they caught him, and that happened to be right, you know, 50 feet from my porch where I was sitting, preparing a sermon, is where this happened. In talking with those police, they had said, yes, a long time ago, bad places were between this street and this street. And if I said those streets, you would know them. Whatever streets in Parkersburg you think this might have been, they, yep, you're right. He said, but now, those bad places where drugs are so prolific, it runs from St. Mary's to Ravenswood. And it's like all throughout. So, there, but, and why is that? And why, and why, of all the records that West Virginia can set, why do we need to set and, and try to claim records in the state and then in our county for the number of drug overdoses and so on? Well, it's because hopelessness reigns. Because the more and more, and, and what is the fix to this? Well, the, they need Jesus. The things that are going on in the high schools, okay, what do they, they need Jesus. What are the, okay, there's been a dismantling of the family. What, is it, what does the family need? The family needs Jesus. It is through the gospel, through this, so this, if you're, if you're now being saved, again, this is not a YouTube, a, a, a video came up on my feed again the, the other day and, and talked about your decisions and how baptize, baptism is going to be that example of your, uh, it's your outward profession of your inward belief. And when this is feeding even the church, we have a self-centered gospel who, which does little to transform me. When baptism is actually an external sign of an inward grace which God has done in me, if, if God is the one who has pulled me out of the miry clay, if, he, if God has pulled me out of the darkness and set me into the light, that's what the Bible says, if He has done that, then what that is is He's taking part of the kingdom from heaven and He pulls it down into the here and now. And now you have been set out of miry clay. Anybody, does that do anything for anybody? Anybody ever got stuck and had your boot stuck? And then you got your nice white sock dirty because you get your pool and you put, your boot comes out. Anybody ever gotten stuck in the mud? What the Bible says is God pulls you out of that miry clay and he sets you on solid ground. Okay, this is what he has done. And what he, when he does this, he puts you out of the world and into the kingdom. And, he, and this kingdom thing and the body thing, okay, it's also the church. And as, and as many people as you run into that hate church, I'm sorry God doesn't have a better plan for us. This is just what His plan is. That you come out of the world and into the church. This becomes the family. 
And we are fed by his word and his sacraments to live more and more for him. And we have this foretaste of the reality in which we see the rest of the world. Because we are part of this kingdom which has come in part in the here and now as who's, who is the king of the kingdom to come? That's King Jesus. Jesus came. The kingdom came because the king came. The kingdom is in the here and now. We're not only waiting for it to come. In the coming, there's, some, there's something different about those who are in the kingdom. So then we are able to see the rest of the world around us and interpret it. And we are given a hope laid up for us in heaven. We, so we are not hoping or longing for heaven so that we can escape our troubled world. But it's our hope that is in heaven which helps us navigate here in the brokenness of this world. And again, it's those who are thinking of that next world the most, who are most effective in this world. We're, and, 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 I will, I, and I'll, I'll side with you, yes, we're waiting for the full fulfillment of the kingdom to come, and we are looking with anticipation, but we are in the kingdom now, and we have, for, we have this foretaste of what is to come. Um, so we, we, want, we want him to come, and we want to, for sin to be vanquished. We want there to be no sorrows and no sin. Yes, all those things. But we have a piece of that in the here and now, and it gives us perspective in which, through which to interpret the world. So in this thinking of, if, let's say I'm right. Let's just say I'm right about this thing where hope, hopelessness, reigns in our community, in our state, in the world today, in the people you know. If hopelessness really reigns, I want you to think on how does the gospel give you hope? How has the gospel changed your perspective? How does this gospel give you hope for today? How does this gospel give you hope for the future? So we, so we have, we have the, the uh, garden being the people. We have the planting of the seed, the gospel which has come, and it bears fruit. And, it's, and, and that's giving us this heavenly taste. So what is this fruit? We want to look at fruit next. So verse 6. Okay, it starts which. So let me back up. Well, like Paul, so... It, I'm going back up to three because this is where this sentence starts. Or no, 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 5B of this. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Okay, now on six. Which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras... Our, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So, the garden's the people, the seed is the gospel which is planted, and then this gospel subversively takes root and it grows. And I say subversively because... It is intended to subtly 
flourish. It takes root. It, it produces fruit. And then it counters the ways of the world. So the gospel, bringing this kingdom into the here and now, and we're part of this, it, it counters the ways of the world, and we are being shaped and formed by the principles of the next world. And this is then how we are to live, and we're pattering living in the next world, we're pattering that in this world. We are dealing in those two spheres of time, that is. It's that already but not yet. We talk about this a lot. It's that the kingdom of heaven are for those who believe and that, that has been pulled into this broken world. Back up in verse 4, Paul said that he knows of their love that they have for all the saints. So you will know we are Christians by our love he knows that they have love for the saints because their hope has been laid up in heaven. Epaphras has made that known to Paul and Timothy about how this church down in Colossae, which maybe you've not even been to, I'm here to tell you, these people have a love for one another. This, this gospel really has taken root. And he's given witness to Paul and Timothy and he says that they love in the Spirit. This is the fruit. Simply that they have love for one another. Now, that doesn't mean, uh, though, that there's this unity here. There's a unity of love. That doesn't mean that they're all the same. It doesn't mean that they all agree about everything all the time. But they simply could extend love for each other. They were to love instead of stir up dissension. They were to love... Instead of gossip, they were to love each other instead of engaging in backbiting or spreading rumors. They were to love by confronting one another during disagreements. In our world today, the thing that you do because you love somebody is you avoid all disagreements. If that's how you run your marriage, make an appointment with me. We need to talk. Because that hasn't blown up in your face yet, it's going to. There, it's, you are still who you are, but you're part of the body. You have been uniquely gifted to add your gifts and strengths to the body. That doesn't mean we're the same. doesn't mean every decision I make you're going to like. But we walk together. And, it, and, it, and it's based on this commitment because of what we've been called into by the Spirit. We are to choose love. We're unified by the grace of the gospel. Like us, those people in Colossae were sinners in the process of being saved. They were humbled by the gospel and united in grace. Then they lived out of gratitude. It's that guilt, grace, gratitude kind of concept again. That's the, it's the theme of the gospel. More and more in our world today, love will be noticed from the outside. Heavenly residents, those who are resident in this kingdom of heaven, we know that we have done nothing to deserve such a gift. Then because of that, we are able to extend grace to one another and love 
others without condoning sin. These things the world cannot do. In the world today, to love is to condone and accept another's sin. But we can live honestly, knowing that we are broken people, living among a broken people. We can acknowledge our sin and turn from it, and we can, and we can live up to the challenge when somebody's challenging us with our sin, that we can actually repent and believe. And it becomes a pattern in our way of life. That we turn to Christ and strive to live according to His plan. And we then live out of gratitude because of what He has done. Paul says that the gospel has gone forth and it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you. So we live in a Bible Belt community. And technically we're not in a Bible Belt, but it's, you know, there are so many things that are the same. So, uh, WV, I've told like all kinds of people this, and I don't think I've said it from the pulpit, but WVU did a study very recently, released that study of religion in West Virginia. And they found that 78% of the population claims to be Christians, where only 27% claim to attend a weekly service. Now, those of us who were sharing this information about that, we guesstimated that they had wrong answers even to get them up to 27%. Because you know how that goes. I don't know if you've ever taken a survey, but sometimes those surveys you just answer things and then you're like, well, the technical truth is probably different than that. Yeah, I go, I go to weekly services, but it really may be once a month, maybe every other month. So I don't know that it's really 27%. 27 sounds very high to me. 78 oh, sounds almost low. If it were 80-some percent. So as when I'm in my Anglican world and I go to my Anglican meetings and they say, what are things like in your town? I tell them it's like that. Everybody thinks they're believers. Everybody thinks they're Christian. Everybody thinks they're good to go. You know, Grandma went to church. She was a Christian. I must be good to go. One of my challenges is to get people unsaved so I can get them saved. Because we, we think that we're actually saved. Well, Paul has heard reports about these believers in Colossae that they embraced this gift of grace. And then they loved one another, and they, the fruit of the Spirit is growing in them. This word of truth, the gospel, is a transformative gospel. I do not believe that the gospel coming to one... Now, we can hear things, and we can say we believe... And we can go away and never have anything to do with the church again. And there, and there are stories, and if you know many people, you know people like that. Okay, they just were never regenerated by the Holy Spirit. That was somebody doing their work on their own, but not the Holy Spirit. So, should they call themselves Christians? That answer is no. I'm thinking 78 to 84 percent of the population of, the West, of, of West Virginia shouldn't probably be calling themselves Christian. Uh, that seems very judgmental on my part, and I know. But I do, like, and I'm not a smart man, but do you know that in 1994, in the country of Rwanda, which is half the size of the state of West Virginia and has 12 million people in it, it was 90 plus percent Christian. In 1994, you know what happened in 94? There had been this plotting for years and years and years, and in 1994 it came to a head. And we had dinner one night, and the next day I go over and I slaughter you and your family with a machete. Over a million people died by genocide in 90 days. 
in a 90% Christian country. I'm okay if you think I'm judgmental. Because I believe this gospel is a transformative gospel. I do not believe that the gospel, I don't believe the God of all creation who spoke and created and everything came into being because of the word of his power. That he breathes this life in you and regenerates you and you have been blessed by this but I have no interest in the things of God. I have, have no interest in the things that he likes. My thing, you've heard it. People tell me I like Jesus but I don't like the church. And I think if you like Jesus, you probably ought to like the things he likes. He seemed to like the church. He gave himself up for her. And there's a wrong perspective about like how we're just all kind of right people. There are hypocrites there. That's okay. Come on in. We got room for another one. Yeah, no, we're not, we are not perfect people. We are sinners in the process of being saved. We are sinners coming to the foot of the cross to receive grace to make it through this next week. We recognize our desperation before a holy God in a broken and breaking, crumbling world. This gospel is transformative. Things change. He changes your want-tos. I go knock on your door, I win you win you to the Lord, you never make it out of your apartment or your house to come to a church. I don't know if you're saved or not. I don't know. I don't know. But Paul is saying here that these people in Colossae showed a fruit of their belief. They didn't claim belief. He could tell that they believed. He could tell they believed because of the love they had for one another, the love they had for all the saints. So I got to ask, how does your life show fruit? How does your life show fruit of the, of, of the gospel taking root in your life? How would an outsider know that the gospel has come to bear in your heart? When we think of this gospel being transformative, when you look at your life today and you look at, don't, don't, don't look at your neighbor, don't look at your spouse don't look at the person who really, you know, does their devotions every day. Don't look at them. Look at you. How does your life look different than before, you know, in that B.C. era? How does your life look different than before you came to Christ? And are we, were we good and decent moral people and now we're good and decent moral people? Or has there really been a transformation? What is different in your heart? What has the Lord given you in this gospel? What has the Lord taken away in this gospel? You have heard the word of truth, the gospel, which has restored your hope. May the fruit of unity in love be the mark of us in our congregation. May we exhibit the diversity that's exhibited in the kingdom of God and in his creation here in our congregation, but have a unity of one body bound by grace so that people outside of here and those who are coming in can see that the gospel has taken root and we have been transformed by his grace and we live 
out of gratitude for what he's done. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray.